You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We've had numerous conversations in recent months about alternatives to direct residential property investment. And in a number of past episodes, you have heard us mention index funds and exchange traded funds or ETFs. So we thought today that we should delve deeper into this world to find out exactly what these funds are, how they came into being, whether their increase in popularity is purely due to them being low cost, and are there any that offer exposure to other sectors of the property market? Where better to direct these questions than to a representative of the very organisation that invented index funds in the first place? Vanguard pioneered the concept of indexing, introducing the first retail index fund in the US in 1976. And since then, the Vanguard Group has grown into one of the world's largest and most respected investment management companies. And Vanguard now has a global presence with offices in the US and here in Australia, as well as Asia and Europe. In this episode, we pick the brains of Balaji Gopal, Vanguard's head of product strategy in Australia. Balaji has experience working across government, financial services, investment and management consulting sectors and at Vanguard he works closely with global teams in the design and launch of new products as well as implementing changes across Vanguard's suite of investment products and we're looking forward to learning more from this chat. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Thank you, Balaji. I love index funds. I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, You know, I use them for lots of clients and, you know, they've kind of come all the rage a little bit. But can you please explain just... Really, what is it and how does it work? You know, because a lot of people would kind of have a misunderstanding that it's just, you know, you can buy it and you just, you know, just money just kind of goes up and there's no risk involved with it. But can you tell exactly (laughs) what is an index fund? Chris, um, thank you. Um, Unsurprisingly, we also like index funds. (laughs) <laughs> and um, we um, we globally we manage um, close to seven and a half trillion, um, which is through a combination of index funds as well as active strategies. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. So hang on a minute. So globally, you manage seven and a half trillion dollars worth of index funds, which is basically the value, coincidentally, of the Australian property market. Yeah, it's seven and a half trillion in assets across active funds, index funds, and and a number of things. So, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So thanks for <laughs> clarifying. <laughs> But I mean, to give you an idea, I think the Australian stock market's what, two to three trillion? Yeah, two and a half, yeah. Yeah, two and a half. So wow, it's a three times mm. Australia, um, you know, bigger than a lot of countries in the world. Um, We're honoured so, to have you here. <laughs> yeah. Um, seven and a half trillion, it's a lot of money. But back yeah. to the question, you're going to tell us what an index fund is. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, the first trillion is usually the hardest. They say. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The, be- <laughs> the, best, um, the best way to understand an index fund is to, to talk about um, what is not an index fund and then draw it back to what an index fund is. 
typically you have, um, when people want their money managed professionally, they would engage the services of a professional fund manager, or mm. an investment manager or an asset manager. They all mean the same thing. So what they do is people entrust their monies to a manager who might invest that sum of money in a certain way that is agreed between, um, you know, for legal reasons as well as with the, with the client. Basically, the notion there is you want to know how this money is going to be invested, what it's going to do, but more importantly, what it's not going to do. Mm-hmm. And some of these managers then um, pick stocks or bonds, as the case may be, for whatever strategy that they're running. And the notion is that they will try and generate a positive return over time that you as a client will benefit from. And for the purposes of this, they charge a fee, which um, which comes off some of the return. And um, the notion is that over time, the returns will be um, in a positive, sustainable way that will well and truly offset the fees and um, you as an investor uh, benefit from the results. Mm-hmm. Typically, these active managers, and we call them active because there is a notion of they are making an active choice to invest in certain stocks. They get measured against what is known as a standard index. And the notion there is if this manager was compared to just a standard index fund and an index is essentially just a collection of stocks that might represent either a certain country or a certain sector or or something like that. Say from an Australian standpoint, you look at um, um, the ASX All Odds, Mm -hmm. which is the All Ordinaries Index or the S&P ASX 300 or the 200, which is essentially the top 200 or 300. So if a, the notion there is if a manager, if a fund manager is looking to run a strategy that is similar to that index type of exposure yep. um, or broadly around Australian equities, then how has this manager performed relative to just a standard index where nobody's picking stocks there? It's just a collection of um, stocks that have been put together based on very rules-based set criteria. Yeah. So from um, so this was a very long-standing practice from an investment management perspective globally. This is how money was run as uh, active managers picked stocks or picked securities, and that's how money was run. Um, in about um, in the early seventies, um, and this is this is when the whole concept of indexing started to um, yep. take shape. Um, there was a, there was a professor by the name of Paul Samuelson who wrote a, a theory saying, "Hey, most of these active fund managers can never." beat a standard index. Yeah. Most. There are people who perform, and this is not a blight on people who pick stocks, but um, the notion is that when you strip back the returns, many of these investors can't meet the index. So uh, this person wrote a, an article and said, somebody in this world should look at creating an index fund. Right. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was obviously a very foreign concept. Mm. And Jack Bogle, uh, at the time, who was the founder of um, Vanguard, he, um, he took on that challenge and he believed in that concept and he was also of that view. And um, so long story short, lo and behold, um, Jack Bogle created the first index fund in the world, Wow! Um, which was, um, which was a, a US total market exposure. Mm. And it took a very, very, very long time for that index fund to take traction because it was a very much a disruptive force in the industry. It mm. was, I think he was accused of, um, being un-American, and it yeah. was um, because it went it went against the whole notion of you know you're going after the winner and wow, um, yeah. facing performance. So that's essentially that's a, a sorry it's a long answer, but that's I thought the history was important to talk about um, what the index fund is and how it came up to be. And, and it, that's an interesting point because with stocks you can pick little bits and 
you know, a few shares in that company, a few shares in that company, in that sector, in that industry, in that country. You know, you can actually truly have a diversified portfolio as distinct from property. People talk about diversified property portfolios, but really and truly it's such a lumpy asset. Therefore, it's really difficult. You have to be, yes. a, you have to be a billionaire to be able to have a diversified property portfolio. So, so therefore with property, when you've got one asset or only a handful of assets, then it's important to outperform um, and also because you've got big costs of getting in and getting out and all that right. sort of stuff, it's important to try to outperform the rest of the market, you know, and that's, yep. that's really how you're going to make it work. But with stocks, because there's additional costs involved in managing those funds and managing those those asset or those portfolios over time, then it's a, you know, like the whole concept of not trying to outperform is an interesting one. Because, I mean, as you say, it's like John Vogel was accused of being un-American because it's like that's not the entrepreneurial way, right? That's right. Yeah, so it's fascinating though because the cost aspect of it is part of it, isn't it? The, the cost aspect is is fundamental to it, and um, and um, Jack Bogle also pioneered the whole concept of um, this type of investing doesn't need to come at a huge cost because mm. nobody in the world can control um, how markets behave in certain conditions. Mm-hmm. People might have a view, economists might have a view, stock pickers might have a view, but nobody generally in aggregate knows how things are going to play out. Mm. Um, it's the degree of certainty. People might have different degrees of certainty. But um, to the extent that you're investing in an index fund or an index strategy, then you're getting access to the broad cohort of that exposure. Now, if I talk about an Australian exposure, it's if you talk about the top 300, you know what you're getting. It's the top 300 and how that performs. Mm. And the one thing you can control is cost. You can't mm-hmm. control the markets, but you can control what you pay. Yeah. And from an investor perspective, the... the the, the guiding principle is if you pay um, lower costs, you keep a lot more for yourself and, um, and that's helping you from your, uh, towards your goals. So cost is one thing that can be um, attributable to uh, an investor in terms of, um, you know, everybody should have to pay the lowest cost possible, particularly in investing. Because mm. well, that keeps more funds invested. That keeps more funds mm. invested and, and more more of your funds are working for you to meet mm. your goals and your objectives rather than paying um, an, an external investment manager who may or may not be um, yeah. outperforming the benchmark. Mm. So, so yeah. yeah, costs is a very, very um, critical component. And risk. And, and absolutely risk yeah. as well. Yeah, you may, I mean, un-American, you know, it's, a, it's usually people make these kind of real big personal kind of <laughs> challenges, you know, when they feel threatened. Right? Mm. Because so all the other fund managers back in the seventies would have been really threatened by this because a it's someone doing something that makes them accountable because if he can if that strategy index can beat them then that means that they haven't really got a job that's actually you know really a job because if they can't outperform the index then they no they shouldn't really be working. Well, there's right? Warren Buffett's famous bet on that, right? Yes. absolutely. Well, that's right, and he did make that, and he won that bet you know handsomely against hedge funds. But it's also the same problem that financial advisors face. Because in the past, a lot of financial advisors were seen as their job was to outperform investment markets. And that's why you would go to a financial advisor to teach you how to invest money Mm. or or actually to manage the money and actually to invest it. But for a financial advisor to say, look, I don't do that. I don't know where the world's going. I'm not, I can't outperform investment markets. Mm -hmm. A lot of financial advisors were kind of put to the side and said, well, what's your job? You haven't really got a value proposition. So financial advisors have had to kind of grow as, Kind of as a profession, mm-hmm. and to realise that you know recommending index funds is actually in the client's best interests, and it's actually you know doing their job right, you know because all the stats are there to kind of prove that since the seventies, 
that, you know, 80% roughly fund managers don't outperform the index. Is that kind of roughly the numbers? That's right. It's closer to 90, yes. Yes. And so 90% of... <laughs> so you got, you know, you managed to get one of those 10% of, of active investors or fund managers or stockbrokers or whatever you want to call them that can actually out consistently outperform. Because, of course, the, the data does say that, you know, that most of them, if they outperform, might do it for a year or two or maybe three years and then they'll have a bad year. Yep. And so when you aggregate it over a period of time, it, that that's when the you've got to measure it. So you got that... that those people will cost a hell of a lot of money to get to manage your money, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's very high. And, and there is a few points. This whole notion of um, um, active managers criticizing indexing hasn't stopped and that still continues and that mm, will yes. con continue. And like you said, because it's disrupting the business model. Yeah. <laughs> to be very clear, we are not saying that active investing is bad. Mm. Um, especially in the last 10 years, a lot of money has come to indexing strategies, whether they're managed by Vanguard or anyone else from active managers, but the most important point there is it has come, that money, that shift from an active to a passive strategy has come from poorly performing active managers. There are managers who consistently, yes, um, you know, from a, from a long-standing track record perspective, outperform. And so we believe in that. I think the challenge there is it's finding these managers. Mm. Now, Vanguard has about a trillion and a half dollars of active strategies as well. Mm. Um, uh, and, and in the US, and, um, and we're, we're talking about what, what shape that would take in Australia. But the one thing, whether it's active or passive, is to just um, consider the lowest cost that you could possibly pay to get access to that strategy. If you can do that, and you can find some fantastic managers who can outperform, that is good. But mm. the, whether it's outperforming or what level of exposure you might have to a certain sector or a stock, it's always got to come back to your goal. Mm. Because... What difference does it make if somebody outperforms a portfolio, which is negative 10% and, an out, and a fund manager's outperformed by negative 8%? The reality is you've just lost negative 8%. So what does that do to your goals? Yeah. So these are some fundamental things that investors need to think about. What, am I in, mm. what, are, what are my goals? And as a consequence of which, what is the mix of assets? How do I get access to it? Mm. What is the lowest cost I'm paying? And, and Jack Bogle always said, you know, he had the saying, stay the course. And that is fundamentally important because... Oh, I'm, yes. Yeah. It is, it, is, um, it is so fundamental that, you know, investors will always behave irrationally. And um, I'm not talking just average um, retail investors or advisors. I'm talking large institutional investors. Yeah. We're just humans, so we yes. behave irrationally. So I think from, from that perspective, you just need to um, make sure that you understand what your goals are, you stay the course... Um, and when markets go down, it's not a, it's not the case of you know selling down assets or when markets go up, you know you you're having the FOMO effect and wanting to buy more assets. Yeah. So I mean, you would have seen this in um, playing out in property. We do. So. We, it's, it's all yeah. the same stuff yeah. and it's behavior. I mean, our very first episode for anyone who hasn't gone back and listened to it with Simon Russell, who's a behavioral scientist, financial specialist, and you know he reflected on um, going to an auction and talked about all those behavioural biases that he could see played out. And, and of course, he's, he's built a whole career and written a couple of books on behavioural finance. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so, yes, you can be, and I see that in my business and we, in, in turn, my team, you know, we buy property for a living. When we're buying it for ourselves, mm. um, we can be so impacted by our elephant, that, yes. you know, our subconscious mind, even though we know, we know better, we know different, we know better. So, we use each other as as sort of an honesty box, if you like, yeah. you know, because 
exactly. Experts can still be swayed. Experts can be swayed because they feel that they've got to justify their previous claims. Or, yep. you know, if they've made a call on something and they don't want to look like they don't want to look foolish. Like there's so many things yep. that can result in that. So I guess that's all taken out of an index, isn't it? But what goes into an index? What is it? Because there is lots and lots of different funds, aren't yep. there? And so there's obviously got to be different measures or different guidelines or criteria as to what companies or what shares go into individual funds. And are all index funds sort of equal? No, that's a great question. So the way it works in the industry is you have um, companies like Standard & Poor's, the S&P or MSCI or FTSE. People would have heard of the FTSE 100, the MSCI um, World um, X Australia or an S&P ASX 200. These are companies who provide index-related information based on certain methodologies. So definitely to answer your question, not all index mm. or indexes or indices are the same. Um, but um, it, it comes back to what is the methodology that has gone into building that index. So an Australian 300 stock index is going to be very different to an MSCI world index, which mm. will have, mm. um, you know, a, a few thousand stocks. So again, it goes into the exposure you're trying to get and what is the best possible way to get that exposure mm. that's mm. important. And consequently, I, I spoke about two broadly diversified exposures you have some very narrow exposures. You could construct an index out of anything based on certain rules. Mm. You could construct an Australian financials um, index, which is which would be investing in mm -hmm. the four banks plus maybe Macquarie. Mm. Um, from a Vanguard standpoint, the way we look at, um, when we look at whether we launch a product and what sort of product should we launch, what is the index it should seek to track, if it is an index strategy, is, is it broadly diversified? Um, yeah. And... And also one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is, will this strategy have a longstanding investment merit? You know, can this strategy be available you know, 10, 20 years from now or 30 years from now and still generate an investment outcome for investors who want to invest in it? So what that does is it takes us away from going down any the latest niche, trends. The latest trend. Mm. And this is what's happening in index investing because, you know, it's got a bit of a, a name to it now. There's enough confidence to it. We are starting to see indexes, numbers, you know, and investment options kind of proliferate. Um, I want to, you know, you buy an index in, you know, uh, health or automation or yeah. AI indexes or you know, gold or, you know, and it just keeps on going and or aging population. Yeah. Which is or, a, yeah, so that's sort of like a punt on an industry or or a demographic or yeah. something, isn't it? So Thematic that, ideas that where things may go in the future and is that really fundamentally great investing or is it speculation? And it, yeah, because it comes away from those principles, doesn't it? A a mm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think to add to what Chris said, you know, recently there was also a marijuana ETF um, oh, yes. launch <laughs> or a Bitcoin ETF. And, oh. and um, so that thing about risk we we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the US, um, um, there was a triple leveraged bear ETF, which means you're essentially taking a punt on markets going down, but you've leveraged three times. And oh. this is just. Oh my God. That is just, yeah, I mean, well, you know, like. You this know, is that, just like, isn't that like the whole selling short? Gone yeah, crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and like you know, and and technically, there's you know, there, there's companies here like Vanguard's. Got, there's a number of different you know, yeah. uh, you know, ETF providers in Australia, and one of those offers one of those type of ETFs in Australia. And there's times in the cycle where you know, like people may want to use these ETFs, but they're not you know, buy and hold you know no. options that you hold for a long period of time because they're extremely expensive. 
And, you know, if you do hold them and you buy them at the wrong time, things go bad pretty fast. And so you've got to be really careful. A lot of people think with index investing is you can't go wrong and you can just hold it, et cetera, like that. You've, you've got to really kind of open the tin a lot because mm. they're not all equal and, you know, they're not all risk-free. Um, in terms of indexes, though, um, in terms of like where, you know, people can get in access to property in particular, mm-hmm. um, what are some of the ETFs that you offer because, you know, it's pretty easy to get access to commercial property on a global scale, isn't it, via some of your products? Absolutely. So we we offer non-direct property exposure through ETFs and funds. So Vanguard, we offer funds and ETFs, so we're uh, almost mm-hmm. agnostic to the strategy. So we offer um, um, an Australian REIT index, which is essentially a REIT is a real estate investment trust. Mm-hmm. What it is, it's just a, a collection of um, um, companies that invests in properties. like right. And the types of property we're talking about are typically not residential, but yes. uh, unless you're talking about the, the Mervacs of the world who mm. are building big residential developments, mm-hmm. they're still reputable bodies. So these are companies that are listed on the stock exchange. They invest in um, um, commercial buildings. They invest in shopping centers. They invest in you know big industrial... Um, the Stocklands of the, the world. Stocklands of yeah. the world. Yeah. Dexas. The Dexas. Yeah. Um, Westfield. And the Westfields mm. of the world. From our standpoint, again, S&P constructs an index, which is an ASX 300 REIT index. Mm-hmm. We invest into that. Now, whilst it gives you a diversification away from just residential property, you also need to understand with an index like this, there's roughly about 29 stocks in the index. Not a lot, is it? It's not a lot, Mm. um, especially because the segment is narrow. And this is probably the point where we would, we're okay, but, you know, still only 29. We would would be quite happy with 290, but 29 Mm -hmm. is Mm. still small. But that's not to say that it's a a bad outcome. It's it's still relatively concentrated. These companies invest in a number of um, um, buildings in in Australia. And because it's an Australian-based structures, you have the benefits of um, some... Certain um, franking credits um, flow through as well. Thanks to Labor. Actually, <laughs> um, and well, the other the, John Howard wasn't it really? Yeah. <laughs> John, John <laughs> and the flip side to that is, um, if you want to truly diversify, um, then you look at a global um, REIT world mm. where you have um, a lot more stocks. Um, you know, about six hundred or, or, or more. Got you. But, but that's investing in different markets, mm. and again, trying to get the same outcome. You don't have the massive benefits of franking there, um, but it's these are very different types of exposures. And if you really want property exposure, this is a way to do it. But at Vanguard, we um, we caution people to say, we think, and you know, both of you would know better than anyone else, mm. that um, you know, Australians have an overexposure to property, but there's, there's other factors that are influencing that decision. So if you're trying to diversify away from that, then whilst property is a way, there's, you might want to think about diversification more holistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because... Um, there's such a strong exposure, like even our standard Australian 300 stock exposure has about an 8% allocation to property. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the direct property allocation that you might be making. It's also, you could be getting more exposed to property through other ma- other means. Yeah. So, you know, not really getting saying much more diversified property on property on property. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> um, one of your products that you've released um, last year, I think it was, I think it was in... Um, it's something called like your diversified ETFs. Yeah. Um, and I guess what these are is that instead of buying, you know, lots of different indexes um, and having that, uh, you know, the challenges of managing different indexes that are all performing differently, some are doing well, some aren't doing well, um, and then potentially having to rebalance 
and sell some and buy some, you can actually buy something called a diversified ETF. Can you tell us a bit more explaining how that actually works um, for consumers and, and why they potentially might be a good option for some people? Absolutely. Well, before I talk about the product, I'll talk about the rationale behind how we think and how that's translated into mm. this product. At Vanguard, our core principles are we, need, we think people, investors should start with their goals and then they should start with a balanced view of, you know, what is the mix of asset allocation that will get me there, whether it's stocks or bonds, or it could even be, you know, what if people are holding properly, then, you know, am I diversifying enough? And, um, you know, what is the right risk and return that I'm comfortable? And I think risk also needs to be something personal. It's not a, a mathematical measure in terms of, you know, how comfortable am I to lose money and what are the behaviors that I might exhibit when I start losing this money? Mm -hmm. um, again, we're getting into the <laughs> yes. behavioral mm. aspects, which um, no doubt you're seeing in property. We also think cost is a big aspect of it. And then the final one is um, the discipline. It's about staying the course. Mm. So once you decide on this, stay the course, no matter what. Which is always going to be easier if you've actually taken the time to work through your goals and That's actually right. plan it, isn't it? Because then you think, well, I've made these decisions for good reasons. And so therefore I'm confident enough to just let it go. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. And it's a good point actually, because if you haven't have taken the time to stop before you invest um, and you, you know, and I have this very, very common, almost daily, I'll speak to, you know, clients and whether they're investing in property or thinking, or they're thinking about, I can't, I'm not going to invest in property for a few years. So maybe I should go invest and buy some shares or whatever. Um, not many people think more than two or three years down the line. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, you know, there's things that happen, right? I want to start a business, you know, start a family, um, or I want to buy a house. Yep. Um, and, you know, and it's, or I'm going to buy an apartment and I'm, it's not ever going to be big enough because yep. we're going to have a second child. Um, and, you know, this, that's our plan and we're going to outgrow it. And so, you know, just taking that time to really think how your life's going to change and what your requirements are and if you're going to need this money, because if you are going to need that money, you know, two, three years is just not enough time or yep. runway to invest. Absolutely. Um, mm. And if you are, and so, you know, it's easy for people to say, oh, you know, keep it there and keep it there forever. But if you haven't actually realized and actually done the numbers, you can't actually keep it there forever because you need it in two years. So, yep. <laughs> you know, if you are putting investing money, you really do want to know that you're not going to need that money and ideally not for a long, long time. Yeah. And we think all investing should be for the long term because it, if, if nothing, at least it um, gets rid of any short-term behavioral mm. biases that you might come into. But coming back to the diversified um, story, so based on these principles, uh, Vanguard's always launched uh, multi-asset class diversified strategies, which is not just um, diversifying diversification across asset classes, but also sub-asset classes. So mm -hmm. when I talk about equities it's or, or stocks, we're looking at um, should it, what proportion should be in Australian stocks versus global stocks, and we'll do right. the same for bonds and, 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 uh, and other categories. So we, we've had these diversified strategies which have been a plain vanilla approach and, um, you know, they've been very successful with a lot of um, investors in Australia and globally just investing in strategies like this. So around about last year, we looked at, you know, how do we improve um, the access to this for the number of people and we just created an ETF version of these strategies. Right. So essentially what you are getting is you can buy a diversified portfolio as as if you were buying a stock on the Australian exchange. Mm. And we'll talk about what ETFs mean and, and what, what are the differences in a second, but it was um, it just made things very easy. And for people who want to um, have access to a diversified portfolio, 
don't want to think too much about wanting to manage um, and monitor market movements and, you know, the rebalancing and thing. Yeah. All of that is incorporated into this product. It's um, the, it, it incorporates some of our best thinking by our investment strategy group. Um, and, um, and ironically, it's um, when you keep something so simple and so low cost, not just about performance, but it's, it's outperformed and it's been in the top quartile across one, three, five, seven, and 10 years. So, uh, and to give you an idea, I mean, um, so in the past, prior to this new product with these diversified ETFs, which, you know, investors can go onto the stock exchange and buy. And in, in, the way I kind of think about it is depending on the strategy, you know, low risk to medium risk to high risk, because there's a number of different yep. funds. You could pretty much buy every single company in the world, really, That's right. through just going on and buying one share on the stock market, which you can do via a broker, which is, can be done within minutes by setting up an account with Comsec or <laughs> CBC right. or, you know, a so stockbroker account. So you're saying you could actually buy one share in every single company in the world. And, and then have <laughs> almost, <literally laughs> almost have ownership in every single yeah, company. Yeah. Well. And then also have a strategy that technically... Take over, a long time, wouldn't it? Over, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, everything from your US to Europe yeah. to Japan to Asia to, you know, all over the world and just through one trade. But, but before you did have these strategies, but you'd have to have a minimum you know, amount to go into them. You'd have to fill in a, a, a application yeah. form. Um, you'd have to send it off, send a check, et cetera. If you ever wanted to sell it, that whole same process would have mm. to happen. So it was very difficult to kind of get in and out. Now, one oh, thing I love. You can do it online. I mean, I mean, I've got a, you know, I my, through my bank, you know, I've got my access to my share account, my little list of ETFs that, you know, that mm-hmm. I've got most of them are Vanguard, not all, but um and I did all that research as to which ones I was going to, to choose. And then afterwards, I think I was like, oh, it could have just bought, just one, bought one diversified. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not touching them anymore. I just add to them. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Just by you sharing our episodes, you're really helping us. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. I think the Vanguard fee model is something that people don't really understand. Um, and it's kind of like the ultimate fee model for people because, um, you know, you basically, as soon as Vanguard stakes starts making more money, instead of passing it on to investors, they pass it on to their, you know, people who are investing in their funds by reducing fees. Can you explain how that actually works yeah. and why you do that? Uh, absolutely. And sorry, I should have explained that at the outset when I was talking about Vanguard. But Vanguard has this um, unique structure, which is called a mutual structure. Again, like indexing, to explain the mutual structure, I'll explain what a, what is not a mutual structure and we can come back to it. So typically, uh, organizations are set up, and especially if you're talking about financial services companies, people might have a few funds, they might run certain strategies, they charge a fee, a portion of that goes into their profits. And, um, and that's the more of the capitalist model, which is designed to make more money for the capitalists. Um, what a mutual structure is in from a Vanguard standpoint, and it's pretty astounding because Jack Bogle, when he was a late teenager, he wrote a thesis on the fact about 
um, how do you manage the conflict between managing money and an investor's needs? Um, which is pretty astounding. And the, one of the reasons why he wanted to set up Vanguard was not to start off with an indexing fund, but to try and address this conflict. And, um, and if you look at all of the things that have panned out from the Royal Commission, fundamentally it goes down to that. You know, how do people manage the conflict mm. between the shareholder and an investor, uh, a shareholder and, 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 and a customer who might client. be investing yeah. and a client? So yeah, versus, yeah, the advisor's greed. That's right. Technically, versus the customer's greed. Yep. And who's, but really who's, where's, where's the line here? Mm. That, that's right. So Vanguard was set up as a mutual structure, which structurally that means all of the Vanguard funds own Vanguard. And by extension, all of the investors in Vanguard's funds right. own the Vanguard. And what that means is we don't have an external public uh, we're not publicly listed, so we don't have um, an external investor group coming in and expecting returns from us. Mm. We don't have a private owner who who puts all this pressure on us. Even Jack Bogle who started the firm. He could have become a billionaire starting this firm, but he chose to do it this way. And this was one of the primary forces for setting up Vanguard. So I think it's um, it's it's resulted in, in us looking at um, being extremely client-focused. And the way we do it is our model is we build – um, the best performing funds or ETFs, we um, we build scale in them, and once we reach certain scale, we then pass back those returns through fee cuts back to our investors. And this is vicious circle where we 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 raise assets, we um, and then we lower the fees, which then sees more assets coming in, which we cut down the fees. So we've been able to bring down the cost of investing globally by you know consistently across our entire product suite in all of the markets that Vanguard operates in. So it's gotten to the point where when Vanguard tries to go in and set up operations in certain new countries, and this happened in, in Canada recently, some of the other incumbents, their, um, their stock price went down. Now, that's almost, we call it internally, as, and, and the media calls it the Vanguard effect. But again, <laughs> we're, not, we're not about trying to market or do something gimmicky. This is, this is all about looking after the client's need yes. and keeping your costs low. Mm. And just that message has been able to um, and especially if you're a trusted band, one that investors trust, I think we've been able to build scale because of that rather than deliberately trying to chase growth for growth's sake. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, like you said, under management, you've got $7.5 trillion in the world, right? In Australian dollars, yes. In Australian yeah. dollars. So it certainly hasn't impeded your growth, <laughs> having, having that much more altruistic, altruistic um, vision and values at the outset. Mm. It's actually, you know, it's, it's got to be heartening really, I guess. And I, th- I didn't know that, to be honest. So I didn't know it came from that. I had no idea. I just invested because originally I came across the, the concept through an article that Noel Whitaker mm. wrote, and we interviewed Noel Whitaker a while back. It's a great, yeah, great interview with Noel. And I read in, in, in an article that he wrote in the Herald, this is some time back, and I went, oh, this sounds interesting. And I started researching it myself and sort of then came up with all these, these um, ETFs that I decided that I would invest in. But then, then Stuart Weems, and we've, we've interviewed Stuart Weems, he's a financial planner, and, and he's very much you know, along the lines of evidence-based mm-hmm. uh, investing and, um, and in his book, Investopoly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah. I read his book and that has a really good explanation of it as well. It's interesting though because sometimes when I'm talking to people about ETFs, they say the problem is that the um, – now I'm going to try and work out how I can explain this – that 
that, like, for instance, if you've got the low-performing stockbrokers and equities, you know, fund managers and all the rest of it, they start then funneling all their clients into ETFs. So then they're buying a, a piece of the S&P 500 or, yep. you know, whatever. Does that then perpetuate share prices that that uh, would not, they're not really free trading then? Because they're actually trading as an index rather than individually on the on the stock exchange. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. It, is it, that an it, issue? It perfectly makes sense, um, and, and it goes back to the question that, um, well, the point that Chris raised at the outset about you know fund managers coming in and you know criticizing indexing. Yep. We've, unsurprisingly, we've done our own research from a bottom up perspective in terms of what does this mean, and not just because we're an in, we're a predominant indexing business, but also because. We're very concerned about if if it's not the right thing for clients, then that is of a concern to us. Or if it can distort itself. Or if it can distort itself. Um, So we think that indexing still forms a very small component of the overall investable universe. Yeah. It's about, you know, 10 to 15, 10%. Yes, it has grown quite phenomenally, but it's still a small chunk. Okay, yeah. Um, Active managers, so people who are picking stocks and and, and securities, still constitute the vast majority of of the... so they're not, they're not a dying breed yet. They're, they're not. A, they're not a dying breed, and and we we don't want to come in and just espouse and say indexing is only the way. We just think that in ninety percent of the cases it does its mm. job, and there are some good active managers who will also tend to outperform. So also, if if theoretically if if this trend keeps continuing, it'll just generate more opportunities for active managers to come in, look at these distortions, and then buy certain stocks or sell certain stocks to, to try and. Um, do what they do best. Mm. And we just haven't seen that play out. But again, it comes back to indexing is still a small part. We don't think it's um, anywhere near the point where of distorting. Really, I mean, I, I, my kind of view on it, you're right. If, if indexing was, say, 70 or 80% of the market and, you know, that would potentially start to create some issues, but it's not. And really the way that Vanguard, I think, are growing, you know, and other index funds are growing so much is they're taking money away from what I would consider lazy investment managers and you can very easily see what those investment managers are because, um, you know, the correlation of their fund um, and, you know, how they perform is extremely similar to how the index is. Um, and, you know, so Australian share manager, um, you know, would invest in a broad range of stocks and their correlation to the Australian index is 0.9%. So whatever the Australian market does, they do. And so those fund managers who have these very high correlations and they charge a high fee to do so. And that's usually a percentage As a, of uh, funds under management? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. therefore they're doing effectively the same thing or maybe even cheating <laughs> in using index funds and then charging more money for the for well, the privilege. Well, another way to describe what you said, and it's a, it's a great articulation, is we call it in the industry benchmark hugging. So some of these um, yes. managers need to manage these mm. strategies, but what they do is because of the fear of reprisal of underperforming an index, they run their strategy very, very close yeah. to the index. So again, and when you overlay that with their cost, they're almost guaranteed to underperform. Mm. So um, it's a really good point, actually. So it's called, um, you know, if you, uh, you if you've got like, for example, ten fund managers in a room, um, and you, the name of the game with funds management is to build up a fund, because um, the your model is based a percentage of that. So you don't really care so much how it's performing as long as the fund is growing because your revenue is based on how much money you're managing and fund managers get to a point where they're making good money and they've got a fund and the last thing they can do now is to underperform 
because if soon as you start getting onto performance, it starts, the investors start saying, well, why have I got my money here? I'm underperforming yep. the index. And so um, what they all basically do is they start to hug the index That's right. because they, what they want to do is to show no underperformance because yeah. that won't uh, upset the investors, but they don't really need outperformance. It's stressful. I just exhausted just even trying to think of working yeah. like that. It's horrible. Yes. But I mean, <laughs> you can't knock them because as a business now, they've got staff. Yeah, of course. They've got offices. They've got marketing. They've got branding. And they've had to have some sort of value value proposition to get people in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, and then you've got to keep earning your, you've got to keep proving your worth and saying, you know, that I, I, you know, we're on the right thing here. You know, you'd be doing worse off if you did it by yourself. <laughs> yeah. And so basically what happens, these funds basically end up hugging the index and charge, you know, 1% for it. Mm. Um, and and where these kind of, and over time though they slightly underperform because of their fees it's hard well, the to returns just, are underperforming yeah just yeah. to keep ahead of the index and then they basically at some point the investors switch on and then they start going to someone like a Vanguard and um, that's kind of what happens in fund management world the last thing funds who are doing well want to do is take any risk and so that's the what, mm. what you're paying them for uh, absolutely and that's why it's so important when you have um, you know, active managers managing strategies to sometimes, you know, still apply the same principles of, you know, staying long term. Mm. Because people, if they're doing the right thing, um, sometimes the market um, is slower to respond. But it's it's about measuring performance over the long term. You don't want to measure someone who's lost something in, in, a, in a month or six months. You, you want to look at, you know, over what does the trend look like for one year, three years and five years. And so long as they they have this trend towards positive outperformance. That's what you want. Yeah. But it's exactly. not about making any hasty decision just because someone's had a short amount of performance. And and the really good active managers and there are um, just because there's an exodus of money going into passive that doesn't mean these people are not doing well. No. Quite the contrary. So the good ones continue to get good. Mm. So it's about being able to find them, staying with them, being patient, yeah. and being disciplined. It's a really good point. So the active managers that probably are some of the best ones to choose do go through periods of underperformance because generally the way that they outperform is to take risk. And sometimes mm. they underperform because those risks aren't paying off yet Yep, because they're betting on things that uh, haven't happened or may happen. And so the market sometimes goes in irrational ways and these funds, so you'll look at them and you'll go, well, that fund's not a very good fund because it's underperformed the index mm. by 5% in the last year. But then you look at their three and their five and their seven-year performance, and because over that period that has shown it, they've actually outperformed. And so but it comes got, back to that, you know, what you said originally is having a goal, you know, doing the research, actually deciding what vehicles are going to get you to your goal. And, you know, in, in, if an active manager has made various calls on certain sectors or companies or whatever based on lots of research and, and, and educated opinion – then, you know, you've got to stick with that rather than knee-jerking and, and, and doing what well, in the equivalent in the property world is hot-spotting, you know, yeah, trying yeah. To, to pick Hobart and apparently Hobart's on the nose. Oh, I just saw that <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> apparently it was on the front page of whatever the main paper down there is. I should know it. I've been in it. But um, saying that investors flock to the mainland. Yeah. Oh, it's left. all over for Hobart apparently. Oh, no. Oh, no. Dear, oh, dear. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't. I, yeah. I do. <laughs> And Veronica, it's interesting. That's an interesting point because one thing we've also noticed is investors continuing along the um, irrational behavior uh, hypothesis. They will always, people will always look at wanting to invest in the best performing manager mm. and especially an active manager. 
We did some work internally at Vanguard, and this was um, some, some of the results were staggering. We looked at in the year 2000, the, we took the top performing fund manager, the first and the second. We looked at how they performed in other years. Mm. So in the year 2000, these guys were number one and number two. In the year 2005, out of 366 managers that were compared, these guys were 363 and 364. Ouch. Um, Pretty close to it's a the wild bottom. ride. It's a wild <laughs> bottom, and it's um, it, which was which was um, an interesting analysis because that's why it's so important to not chase performance mm. yeah. and bring it back to your goals, like you said. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's um, and that wouldn't just be that year. That would be very common yeah. that you know funds that are the top performing funds the next year they are what you call dog funds that you yeah. know at the bottom of the you know the pile. Um, I mean, I guess uh, can you explain how like these type of funds also deal with fund flow issues and um, how you've got to be a little bit careful with some funds that can become in vogue and out of vogue very quickly and, you know, how index investing kind of protects you from that a little bit? Yeah, from an index perspective, we, we can always um, come back to, you know, you are not betting um, one way or the other. You are just getting exposure to the market, whether it's a, a global equity strategy or a bond strategy. But what you're doing is you're bringing it back to you in a diversified portfolio context. Say, for example, if you've got um, st a stock portfolio combined with a bond portfolio, the bond portfolio seeks to serve as some level of insurance. So say if you have a GFC type event, you know, you'll have the bond portfolio giving you a little bit of a, a handbrake to your portfolio so you're not losing too much money. When it comes back to some of these, um, some of these strategies, who, especially those who are underperforming, flow is an important um, um, aspect of their business model and they need to continue to raise flows and they need to continue to be able to articulate why the why there's been an outperformance or an underperformance. Mm -hmm. What we've found both at um, my experience at Vanguard and even elsewhere is managers, it, like in any, any industry and even you could transpose this to an advisor, if you're proactive about it and if something's happening and if you can relate it back to, hey, this is what I tried to do, which was mm -hmm. in sync with my investment process, but here are the things that changed and here are the lessons I've learned or here are the things that are outside of my control. That's okay. And, mm -hmm. and so long as you're happy with that response, that's okay. But the ones who don't do that, mm -hmm. um, they consistently lose these flows because people end up voting with their feet. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and again, what that does to an active manager strategy is suddenly when they're losing all this money from their mandates, they, there's an extra bit of pressure to try and retain that which yes. takes the focus away from doing what they're meant to be doing, which is managing the portfolio mm. that their clients have entrusted them. So it's kind of this vicious circle, is, yeah. um, which uh, uh, advisors will recognize as well. So Yeah. So what happens, you know, a lot of the time is um, it's, it's most advisors make these mistakes and, um, you know, they'll build portfolios because the clients come to them to manage money and then they'll build a portfolio of 10 funds and then they'll sit that, that, inevitably because financial advisors aren't the best at picking funds and, um, you know, aren't the best at building portfolios and it's very difficult to manage portfolios of funds. The, the year the client will come in and there'll be problems with the funds, the portfolio, because some funds will be underperforming, some will be overperforming. Um, they'll have to do a rebalance. The client will come in and expect changes. That's what they're paying yeah. for. Um, and it's very easy. The, the advisor will start selling the funds that are underperforming and keep the funds that are outperforming mm. Um, because it's an easy discussion, right? And so what happens is the fund then starts to see fund flows that are leaving and customers are leaving the fund. And then the mindset of the fund shifts um, and this the fund managers are basically now having to sell 
shares instead of buy shares yep. and not look for opportunities. Try not to sell their best companies and their best opportunities. Yep. And, you know, what happens is that just makes the performance even worse because yeah. they're selling shares at the wrong time. I guess um, the obvious question has to be, how do you find, if you want an active fund manager, and probably you're not probably the great person to ask this of, um, how, do, how the hell do you find one? So you, you personally you need someone who's, you know, um, got lots and lots of experience and has actually a, a philosophy that they stick to. Um, and it's usually a philosophy that's contrarian or at least different to what the index is, um, and they, they they ride that strategy. So I believe that the best strategy... And they don't deviate. That That is their strategy. Well, that is it, their it gets, strategy. It gets, it gets um, what, uh, it gets, it, what's the word I'm looking for? It gets improved as they yeah. learn more and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't, the fundamentals don't change. Is that what you're saying? A- absolutely. Mm. And it comes down to... Uh, the quality of the people running it, what's driving it, what is the <laughs> yes. process, what is the mm. philosophy, mm. and also the track record. Now, yes. we we have indexing, but we also have, um, Bangor ironically, started doing this for the Wellington Asset Management um, business. So we've got a trillion and a half dollars of active assets, and we have a, a team that looks at finding the best managers. Some of the strategies and some of these manager relationships that we've had have been in place for, you know, 40 plus years. And so we monitor them our our, our senior management monitors them, our board monitors these managers. And what we do is we get some of these managers to try and articulate what's happened in the portfolio, why, whether it's outperformance or underperformance, because sometimes people get lucky. Mm. But it's, again, going back to um, the quality of the people, you know, perform the, the the process that they have. Have they done what they're going to do mm. and and the longstanding track record and the and what they're trying and the way they're, in which they're trying to do if you like that, then there's there's some very good fund managers out there, but it, they're just very, very difficult to find. And finding them comes at a cost, which again yep. needs to be t- factored takes in. It takes away from your returns. And the hardest thing with performance is we it's very hard to know over short periods and sometimes long periods whether it's luck um, or whether it's yes. skill. That's right. Um, yes. And yeah. it's just – and performance, you just don't know. So if there's a group of 10 fund, uh, fund managers and – you look at their performance, um, you know, two or three of them are probably going to outperform the index because they made a couple of bets and they paid off. Yeah. Now, and they, and seven or eight didn't perform because they made a couple of bets and they didn't pay off. And it's just hard to know whether that was actually skill. And um, I think for younger people, um, you don't need over long periods of time, you don't need to play in that space because compounding returns over 30 or 40 years will get you the result that you need mm-hmm. for your retirement res- uh, outcomes. So, yes, you may want to do it because you may want to get a better return. You may want to play around, but there's a risk involved, you know. Well, I think isn't, there's, there's best, isn't there a best practice of, you know, maximum 10% of your total funds invested or something should be speculative? Or, or is there a – is I mean, there's got to be – there's a figure, isn't it, that's meant to be best practice? Is it 10% or is it 5 I mean, you could quite low. Was it one? (laughs) Tip, and a lot of investing comes from you know if you uh, you want to tell people that you're investing. There's a lot of um, ego driven in investing and Mm. conversations, and I'm picking stocks or I'm you know. Oh no, I hear about it's all you know. You're not not hearing about property at the bloody barbecue. You're hearing about you know. Oh, I just bought these stocks and I made you know 400 percent growth. Blah blah blah. It's whatever, and it's yeah. A lot of that's not investing, right? It's speculative, and it's not really. going to, it's really just doing it because you're interested in it or you want to do it. If you're really going to do the well, best you have for your quick future. buck and it's like, 
It's yeah. not anyway. But what, they, what we also you want to say something there, no, don't no, you? No, no. <laughs> what, what we also find is an overwhelming number of people never talk to you about their losses. No, it's and, exactly right. And, and they never ever say, oh, I've lost this money. Yeah. Um, and it's particularly males are very reticent to just um, call that out. And and this is a big problem because mm. you have um, in Australia with so many people um, running their own SMSFs. Yes. And mm. Some of them have lost tons of money. They don't even know it sometimes. They, they don't even know mm. it uh, or they're in denial yeah. or they're just believing it'll come back. Yeah. But again, it, it misses the whole fundamental point of their all goal, the, the primary goal should have been to protect these assets to help them in their retirement. Yeah. Yes. And they've just gone in and invested in all these different little stocks. They've they've made money on some, they've lost money on some, but fundamentally it comes back to the notion that, you know, their assets might not be sufficient to um, help them in retirement, which is which is a terrible situation. So again, we we always bring it back to the to the goals because it's not about getting overwhelmed by products. And sometimes when um we go to certain events or seminars. A number of people come in and say, you know, there's so many products and what do we do? And then some people come in and say, there's not enough product. Mm. I don't <laughs> think not having enough product is the issue. No. I think, I think um, whatsoever. Um, and I'll say this even as a product pra- practitioner, but <laughs> I think it's, it's people's ability to relate that back into, in, there, there needs to be a clear linkage between here's my goal and this is why I'm investing in that goal. And if you don't know that reason, yeah, and and even that whole notion of um, you know, what percentage of my portfolio should be in speculative stuff, it's whether it's five percent or ten percent or whatever that is. What is the risk that you can withstand? Mm. And if you can't withstand it, maybe you shouldn't be in it. So funny. I when I uh, did a fin- I had a financial plan done some years back, and you know, you you fill in the questionnaire, you your risk assessment, <laughs> and because I I don't, you know, ask you questions such as, you know, how much money would you be prepared to lose um, on investment, or you know, those those would you would you invest in a, in a in a um, a fund, or if you would you make an investment if you thought there was a fifty percent chance you could lose yes. money, for instance, those sort of questions you get asked, right? And of course, I go, no, 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 no. And then, <laughs> but then it says, would you borrow money? Yes. How much money would you borrow to invest? I was like, oh, borrow shitloads, you know. Yeah. And um, and it's like, so I came with this bizarre risk. Risk yes. profile because it was like I'm prepared to borrow money, but I won't. I won't actually speculate, and I'm not prepared to lose money. And um, and it's because of the way I think about property. It's like I'm very, very careful. I don't think the risk is in how much you borrow. I think the risk is what you assess, what what you asset, the asset in which you um spend that money. Right. That's the, right. Whatever you buy is where the risk is, not the actual how much money you borrow, as assuming affordability and serviceability and all that sort of stuff. And so it just makes me laugh because you know, is there a proper <laughs> Risk assessment no. of all of that. You no. know, according to that, I'm high risk. I've got a high tolerance to risk in one aspect, but absolutely zero tolerance in the rest. So risk profiles are the biggest waste of time. <laughs> okay. And, um, and, you know, there's people out there and um, clients don't understand them. Well, if they don't understand the risks, then how can you answer um, the question as well, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's many different risk profiles out there. I remember when I first started in advice 12 years ago, it was three questions you know, and it was in a bank, you know, they're there, they've been there to, to allow the advice to go ahead and to facilitate um, advice. And they're actually really pointless. And, um, you know, and they're very, very, you know, there's many different versions out there and really they just allow people, the fund provider or the advisor to recommend a product, et cetera. 
you know, to actually go through the whole process, a really detailed conversation and it's really educating clients. It can take sometimes hours and many sessions mm. to actually, because what a client answering those questions, they go in there and they just tick the boxes that they think they should answer, not what actually they need to achieve their goals, what they understand, etc. So really they shouldn't even happen. Um, but unfortunately it's just the kind of the means to the ends that yep. they have to go through. Mm. Um, I guess in terms of, um, you know, just, ETFs more broadly, um, what do you kind of see, you know, the future of kind of investing kind of, do you think there's going to be any new products that kind of people are going to look for, or do you think it's always going to go back to kind of, you know, this, the foundations? Um, Chris, there will always be new products around the world. I think right now there's, um, there's about 7,000 ETFs around the world. I think that's just way too many. Um, but there will always be different <laughs> providers launching products because especially if you are, not in the business of you know gaining a lot of assets, you're almost forced to try different things and yes. see what sticks. Um, and some investors, rationally or irrationally, will come in and buy those. And if they stick, that that's okay. And that's kind of the business model. There's going to be a lot of test and learn happening. Mm. Um, so from a Vanguard perspective, it's always going to come back to the foundation. And as I said at the outset, if we don't believe something can be very diversified, fairly liquid, and that we can offer at a low cost, and that can meet its investment outcomes in the long term, we won't do it. Yes. Um, and, um, and for every product, we, we as a team ask ourselves, would we invest in it? And if the answer is no, then we should be thinking about it. Mm. So again, yeah. it'll come back to the foundation. And the reason I ask that question <laughs> is because next year there will be, and there will be the next year, there'll yeah. be all these new latest products. Well, there's and lots of providers of it, aren't there? I mean, new ideas, yeah. et cetera, like that. But yeah, really, like the Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but really what you should be doing is kind of sticking to the foundation of what has worked for the last 40 yeah. or 50 years. And so, you know, don't follow the latest kind of investment trend. Uh, absolutely. But we're also not saying don't, um, don't just do this because if you are doing something, completely understand why you're doing something. Mm. And, you know, if somebody wants to make an investment in a business, we're not saying that's the wrong thing, but you can't withstand the loss of losing your capital um, I think that it, that's where it comes back to fundamentally. And we think for the most part of um, every investor, what you need is a relatively simple proposition at a low cost and you'll be much better off. And like you said, yep. Chris, the last 40 to 50 years, this is what's worked and, and there's no reason to believe that it won't. It's a good point around losses actually because losses are, um, you know, we've got an anchoring bias that we, um, if it's on paper, we feel like we've lost money. But technically you haven't really lost money until you've sold. Um, mm. And so, you know, like if, if the market's going up or it's going down, a lot of people think that I've made $20,000 because the market went up yesterday and I've lost $10,000 today. Yeah, it's only if you actually sell and, it. But the problem with that though is that if, like if you, so if you bought fund into a fund and, and it goes up and down I, every now and then I jump in a lot, prefer it of course when it's all green, but sometimes there's red in there, but that's just a daily thing and it mm -hmm. flops up, it flops. I look at my total balance and just goes as long as it's bigger than what it was when I first invested in the fund, then I'm happy. Um but the thing is, um, you can get wiped out. I mean, you can buy shit. You know, you can yeah. buy garbage. You can buy. Was it uh, Roger Montgomery was talking about some some share in the US where their whole, you know, the the IPO basically said they they never intend to produce anything. They never intend to produce a profit even. Um, and yet people kept buying them. It's like what the hell? Some sort of digital, yeah. you know. Anyway, the point being, there's a lot of really crap. Properties, or, or sorry, um, yes, there's a lot of really crap properties, <laughs> but there's a lot of really crap companies that list on the stock exchange and really crap stocks that ultimately they've they've got very 
poor propositions and they get wiped out when there's a GFC. Yeah. And you actually lose your money. Like yeah. it's not about waiting until they sell. That that will be out of business and so yeah. there's there is enormous risk as well of losing everything. Absolutely, especially if you put a big chunk of your net worth into that. Mm. Now, in some cases, with some as we know, with some business owners who might put all their savings into the business and make try and make it work, but in a in a in a, in a stock where somebody else is managing that and you have no control over mm. it, and you put your net worth in it, a lot of people have lost a lot of money, yeah. which is quite unfortunate. Yeah, because somebody else is in control, as you say. It's you know, it's a bit like when you. I read some stat about um, businesses that have actually been funded by venture capital have a higher rate of failure than those that self-fund. And um, and and main reason is apparently because the venture capitalists get to a point where they say, right, I want money back now, pull the pin. Absolutely. So- <laughs> well, I think of venture capitalists, I think um, they make 10 bets knowing that one's only ever going to survive. Yeah, so they're just, they're really, they're really... Um, they know you're going to fail. They're brutal. They're brutal yeah. in terms of their time. That's it. Bang. Time's up. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on. But ironically, every investor will only latch onto that one winner that venture capitalists have. Yes. They will never talk about the nine failures. Yeah, human yes. nature. Human nature. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Balaji, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Well, I do, and it's um, it's a combination of the um, property slash shares debate. Um, especially in the G, just post the GFC, we um, we saw a few people who um, use the equity in their property to go in and buy some stock as a diversification play. But what they did was got a margin loan mm-hmm. on that, <laughs> and. A, that's a terrible strategy, and specific to the situation, that particular stock was ABC. So um, we all know what happened there. So um, that was a terrible... As in the childcare. The childcare um, um, stock. But um, I think this is where people got caught up in the situation. Everything was generally going up, and people thought they will always make money. Um, And they... And because of this, when the stock tanked, they lost, you know, quite a bit of money Mm. in the stock, plus the loan. And then the property went down, plus they had to um, pay back this um, amount to the property. So it was a completely terrible situation. So the lesson back there is, you know, be careful of leverage. Mm. And um, again, related back to your goals in terms of what can you, are you, are you able to withstand these losses? It reminds me of an interview I had. Um, I got back from the UK in 2011 um, and I was looking for a job for a financial advice company. And, uh, I went to this company in Melbourne and uh guy sat me down and he's like, uh, look, so what we do here is we refinance our home loan, we release our equity, and then we get a margin loan and then we go and buy some shares. And um, you know, that's what we do here. And I'm like... For everyone. <laughs> is that your strategy? And he's like, yeah, that's what we do for everyone. And unfortunately... You know, um, a lot of financial advisors do work and on these cookie-cutter models um, where the strategy is when you walk in, you know what you're going to get delivered. Mm. And um, obviously I didn't take that job. I told him I didn't agree with the strategy <laughs> um, and w- had a bit of a disagreement and I walked out the door and the recruiter wasn't very happy with me. But um, I wonder you know, what, what it, their risk profile questions would have been. <laughs> well, yeah, it would have been. A, and it would have been mm. the advisor would have basically directed the client into a risk profile that would have matched the advice they wanted to deliver. Yeah. And oh. um, you're right, you've got to be extremely careful with, with leverage um, and margin loans because there is things called margin calls. And, That's right. Um, 
if that margin call happens because there is a change in asset prices that could be a complete freak out of the markets or yeah. it could be mm. a company, you've just got to be extremely careful. And, um, you know, using home equity, you don't have those margin calls as much. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit less risky and a little bit cheaper. But, um, you know, you just got to be extremely careful with leverage. Yeah, which is because, of course, you don't as often obviously get margin calls on your home loan no. or... Uh, potentially it can happen if you, uh, you know, have to sell one property in a portfolio and they're all cross secured. Yeah. Um, yep. and you all of a sudden have to put money in off your own pocket to, to make things balance. Um, so you've got to be careful. I want, look, years ago when I was selling property, I, I once sold a property for a guy that couldn't settle because he owed more than he had failed Ooh. businesses and a whole bunch of stuff. So he couldn't settle because he owed more than the property had sold for. And wow. in reality, I knew what he paid for it. He should have had loads of equity in that, but he'd obviously been pulling it out and using it for a whole bunch of other things. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 Mm. And also just because someone's willing to lend you money or there's money to be borrowed doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Yeah. Although just, that's less of a less of an issue these days, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, I mean, a lot of our listeners will be thinking, you know, they love index funds and they've only talked about the positive. Um, As in us. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, but there are certain risks that in index funds have and, you know, that there's some weaknesses potentially with the way that they work. Can you kind of explain some of the things that, you know, consumers need to be aware of with index funds? So it's, it's a perception thing. With an index fund, um, for the most part, at least the ones from a Vanguard standpoint, are very diversified, which um, which what that means is, you know, it, it takes you away from some of the poor performers, but it also may be, there's the argument that you could be missing out on some returns if you were, if you had more concentrated exposures to certain stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. But um, you know, that's and you could go with some um, active managers who might, um, in the short term, outperform certain strategies and get you mm-hmm. a much better return and outperform the the um, the index for argument's sake. Um, so there is this whole notion of feeling like you've given up that return. Again, it mm-hmm. comes back to an investor mm-hmm. um, nuance. We, we still think um, fundamentally the index is very diversified and, um, and especially if it can be linked back to an investor's goals and I think there is nothing wrong with that. Um, I can't think of too many um, risks of, um, from an indexing perspective. Mm-hmm. Where it could go wrong is, and one of the big risks is you have a number because of this whole um, crunch of money that's gone into ETFs and indexing mm. in total. A lot of people who've never done it now feel like they can come in and launch ETFs and try and do these things. There's a big risk in that some of these people are going to blow up. Hmm. Um, A, because they can't manage the complexity of um, these assets. Now, just because indexing is a simple proposition doesn't mean it is simple because you (laughs) still need a a very strong investment team, a very strong um, technology infrastructure and operational infrastructure, Mm. which some of the smaller players can never be able to get to. So I think the bigger risk is one of the smaller players will blow up and then people start questioning the whole industry. Right. And that's something um, regulators are concerned about. And, mm. you know, and we, we certainly feel we need to play a role in helping educate um, mm. the market as well as the regulator. But that, while it's not directly related to indexing, mm-hmm. but I think that's, um, that's a notion of what could potentially go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point because, you know, not all indexes are equal and some companies, you know, to actually manage it, you don't actually just buy, you actually go on, there actually is a lot of trading and managing fund flows and redemptions and, 
you know, the technology and reporting and making sure that you are tracking that index because otherwise you're not doing your job. Mm. So there's a lot that goes into it. And it, it is, and just to uh, bring this home a little bit, um, from our perspective, when we when we make investments in indices, it's um, it's okay to allocate $5 million to the market, but when you have $50 billion to invest, mm-hmm. I'm just making that number mm. up, but you have to be a bit more methodical in terms of how you start allocating that. Because money. of the impact it can have. Because of the impact mm. you can get. And you don't want to create dislocations in the market. So um, that's why the quality of the investment team is paramount. Mm. And you want mm-hmm. people who've done this, um, who know how to do this and allocate that money in a manner that's um, reasonable. We don't want to create adverse impacts. Mm. But at the same time, also, we want to make sure that you are exposed to the market, which is the, kind of the fundamental reason why you invest in yeah. an index anyway. So it's... um. Yeah, the concept of indexing is simple, but um, the execution is difficult and it, and mm. it, um, it needs a, a very strong infrastructure and teams and people to run it. Yeah, and I guess probably there's a final point. There's lots of what you call fintechs coming out in the world that, um, you know, that have got great marketing and great um, positioning and ease of access to investing via apps on phones and, and things like that. And um, a lot of those use index funds. Um, and a lot of them are using things that be very short-term mindsets of, um, you know, round up, just, you know, plug it into your bank account. Every time you spend money. Oh, you yeah. can, I was just thinking about um, that when you said that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, these are great. And um, I've had lots of clients um, use them and I, I do think they're good. Um, but a lot of people are using them for very short-term purposes. You know, I'm going to build up some money in my roundup and then I'm going to, you know, take that money and buy a TV or whatever. Um <laughs> These, it's not really. Well, it's a, a bit great... like five cents in the jar, isn't it? Really, yes. yeah. that's you know. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, what it's doing is creating bad investment behaviour because what it's actually doing is people are looking at these apps and they're saying that you know I've invested in this kind of startup and over the last year I've made eight percent or I've made two percent this month and it's going really good and it's a really good thing and then they start throwing more money in it. Um, well, they probably and... start telling their friends as well. Well, they that's do, right. and so. Um, you've really got to be careful with these type of things with index funds because the reality is you cannot measure performance over short periods of time. Mm. If you looked at the Australian stock market over the last six months, it's gone up 20%. If you look at over nine months, it's probably broken even or a little bit yeah. up, you know. Mm. And so you've just got to be extremely careful with these with index funds over short periods because the performance is just pointless. It's what happens over 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, and especially this situation is more pronounced if someone's looking to save a deposit and they put all their money in. A, oh, into yes. the market, yeah. um, whilst the index is low cost, I mean, if the market um, goes down in its entirety, you might in the short term not be able to get that money back. Mm. Um, and then, which will make it up uh, over time anyway. But I think that's, that is an important consideration. But I think, again, like any industry, there are good robo-advisors, you know, you've got the stock spots and, and um, you know, to use that as an example, they're very much focused on, you know, taking... Um, taking note of investor goals. And what they're doing is just providing a really good mechanism to offer a portfolio. So it's taking them away, it's taking people away from investing in stocks or, mm. or things like that and, and more focused on thinking about a portfolio that invests in low-cost investment funds. So I think to the extent that um, um, some of your investors and listeners want to consider these, and I think that's there's nothing wrong with that, but what you don't want to do is suddenly start going in and in, you know build all these concentrated portfolio exposures and... Um, and and if you can't link it back to your goal and why you're doing it, and if you're especially going after chasing winners, mm. um, it might feel like you're doing the right thing, but in the long term, you might not. And uh, I agree 100 percent with Stockspot. Um, Chris is a legend, and 
knows exactly what he's doing. And if you look at his process when you go through his application online, um, there's warnings all over everything and what everything is <laughs> encouraging people, people read them? <laughs> to invest long term. Um, yeah. No, they are, like there is you cannot go ahead until you do this and do yeah. that. And That's cool. I have to check um, it out. Yeah. And, you know, and whereas a lot of other things aren't providing those warnings, mm. right? And um, I, I do agree with it's the educational piece approach yeah. is, mm. and you know, and it's smart business. You know, as a business, he wants money to stay there on the platform and to stay in his business. Um, whereas a lot of this kind of in and out, in and out, in and yeah. out, it's not really great for anyone. Yeah. And but if you've got people who have got the right mindset, they invest and then they leave their money there long term. They win. You know, the business wins. Everyone wins. Yeah. So yeah. thank you. Well, on that, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. It's been, I think, great to sort of get a, a greater understanding of of index funds. Um, you know, both Chris and I, well, obviously Chris is a financial planner but and I'm a property person, but I am, you know, and some people accuse me of being bullish about property, which is really funny. Funny, funny they <laughs> clearly haven't actually listened to any of the episodes of this podcast because I do not believe everybody should invest in property and I do not believe every property is worth investing in. And I actually do believe that there are that, that people need to diversify outside of property and and look elsewhere. And so that's one of the reasons we like to enter this these sort of conversations into the general property conversation because it's a bigger thing than just buying property. Well, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you very much. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, further to one of the topics that we talked about with Balaji was around this sort of fads, investment fads. And, uh, you know, obviously when you're talking about ETFs and index funds, then you have to be wary of... uh, I guess, new providers of fads. Uh, they may well be called strategies. And in property, there is no difference here. We get the same thing. One of them, I'll give you one example of a, a fad or a property strategy, and I use that word in inverted commas, was the granny, pla- the granny flat strategy. Now, Chris and I probably have spoken about this on the podcast at times, but you know, there's been a whole bunch of buyers agents actually have packaged up a strategy around this. There's been a lot of people that have been buying houses out in Western Sydney and uh, wrapped up in the services uh, contract with somebody to build a granny flat. And then all of a sudden, you know, whooshka, your yield goes up and suddenly you, you're bragging to your friends at the barbecue that you've made a great investment because you're getting this really, really high yield, maybe 9 or 10% yield on whatever your investment was. And the problem is with that is that you're, you know, you haven't, you've probably ruined your asset really in many cases. I've got a bit of an analogy here. It is like sewing an extra leg on an old nag because you think that a five-legged horse could run as fast as a thoroughbred. <laughs> Do you like that, Chris? <laughs> Do you like that? Yes, Because quality. this is the thing. You buy a house on a big block of land and in a sort of an older established area and you plonk a granny flat at the back just so you can get more rent. Now, what happens when you go to sell that house is that the only person that wants to buy it is yep. an investor who wants to get all that rent. The families don't want to buy it because they would rather a swing set and a trampoline in that backyard rather than a granny flat. The other investors like you won't buy it because there's no strategy. Mm. You know, the, the granny flat's already been put there. It really severely limits your resale market, which in turn limits your capital growth potential. So you've actually effectively, you've got to sewn a leg on a nag. 
Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I'm not a fan of granny flats at all. Um. I mean, I, Domain did an article um this week. Is double income the holy grail of investing? Um, oh, I didn't the, even read it. There you the go. the title of the property, uh, the the article, and um, it's not. In saying that, though, if you have got an amazing block of land um, and you've got a big block of land and you can put a granny flat on that doesn't detract too much away from the, the front house and you haven't got, you've got dual access um, and it can make sense. 100% but, agree. Potentially. <laughs> yes. But for the majority of the cases, no. Um, and also if you're going to hold it short term, um, it's probably not a good idea as well. Um, sell it with the potential for a granny flat. Don't build it yourself. But if you're going to hold it for, say, 30 years and you can increase the income and it doesn't detract from the front, then maybe you should do it. But a lot of the time it's a no deal. Yeah. So I just think the fundamental here is we, we rem- <laughs> remember long term, we don't buy for cash flow, we buy for capital growth. Uh, and also that, you know, if you're chasing one of these little these little fads, you mm. know, it, it can go out of fashion and you yep. can get stuck with an asset. You've actually spent money, you know, devaluing it. Yep. And I'm not a fan of horse rushing. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> Please join us for our next episode when we talk all things global and a lot about China and trade wars. We interview Douglas Isles. He's an investment specialist at Platinum Asset Management. So, yes, we're back on that theme of talking about equities and comparing equity investment to uh, property investment. Lots of um, really interesting insights that we have not uncovered nor discussed in previous episodes. So please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.